Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brian, a 71-year-old retired archaeologist from Dublin who is now living in Donegal. I first met Brian when I attended a lecture he was delivering exploring queerness in Gaelic Ireland. Through his career as an ancient Irish historian and archaeologist, this has been an area in which he's always had an interest. He spoke with great passion about the place of homosexuality in Irish history, from some of the earliest written records right up to the late 20th century, patching together a vision of an Irish LGBTQ history and identity separated from the influence of British or American queer culture, which had dominated the LGBTQ landscape. After many years working in Derry, he settled in Donegal. He said that he bought his home there as a holiday home, but once he moved up, he just stayed. He told me he loves Donegal, but it's quite an unusual place. Despite its conservative reputation, he's surrounded by musicians, painters, poets and very creative people, a good chunk of whom are gay. He has at least a dozen other gay male friends living in the vicinity. In fact, on the day we were to record, having had technical problems with his Wi-Fi, he ended up borrowing the sitting room of two gay friends with whom he was in a support bubble during the COVID restrictions. Talking to Brian, he's very content. He said that he's aware of how lucky he is to have his gay friends around him, and that at 71 he knows his life is slowing down, but that he kind of likes the way in which it's slowing down. He started by telling me how as a teenager he had ended up working in one of Dublin's first gay bars, Bartley Dunn's. I think I was only about 14, but I might be exaggerating that. I got a job, a holiday job, in of all places, Bartley Dunn's pub, the daddy of all the gay bars of Ireland. And I remember when this opportunity of a job there came up, my parents kind of debating this, you know, should they let me take it up? Because there was a, a question mark over it. But the word they used was drugs. Now, it, drugs then did not mean what it means. Now, drugs was meant anything slightly odd, bohemian, or, you know, it, it was just... An alternative way. Anyway, I still can hear my father saying to my mother, oh, it'll make a man of him. And uh, I worked for several summers in Bartley Dunn's. And it was full of all these kind of strange, bohemian, slightly exotic people. But I never made any connection between any of them and their lives as I, you know, saw it. And my own internal struggles or whatever, you know, psychological development. By that stage, I was, of course, I was falling in love with half the boys in my class or in the Scouts or whatever it was. Although there was virtually nothing in the way of sex. I mean, nothing at all. You know, this is Ireland of the 1950s and 60s. So we didn't have a language. We didn't know about these things. And But what I, really what I'm trying to allude, if you like, in this is that we were so innocent. And I don't mean just the kids and the teenagers. I mean, the adults were, you know, barely knew where babies came from. <laughs> <laughs> I've been chatting to a few people 
through doing this. And I think that's something that comes through strongly is that naivety in oh, yeah, all yeah. of society. Absolutely. And I, I know there was like universal ignorance of everything and anything to do with sex, partly because, of course, we were denied access to literature. I mean, although, you know, the, this was the time of films being banned, books being banned. I mean, every Irish writer worked their salt had been banned. So we were never exposed. And it was illegal even to have a book about contraception in Ireland, never mind actually using the, the condoms themselves. So that was the kind of background to my own sort of situation. You know, I found myself kind of highly attracted or falling in love kind of, you know, with my mates. And, things. and then, of course, realising that their development and their interest in girls and so on and so forth wasn't happening to me. And I, I know I, I got into a very bad state psychologically when I was probably about 15 or 16. I'm not sure actually in recollection, but sometime in my mid-teens, I think that was a kind of a nervous, what people have now called a nervous breakdown. And it was partly to do with some sort of recognition that I was not the same as my, my mates. And I think I just became quiet. I can remember kind of, you know, talking my family, my wider family, you know, with my cousins and things that had girlfriends and things. And this always caused me great anxiety. And, and, and it wasn't because I knew clearly that I was... I was more interested in boys. I mean, it wasn't even as clear as that. Because we didn't have language, we didn't have things to read, there was no way you could learn about your own condition. All there was was a muddle and a pain in your heart as you tried to to deal with it. And, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, that there must be something wrong with me. And I remember I slept in a bedroom in the bunk beds with my brother and he was kind of up above me. I remember one night he came in and he was very agitated. And he um, he said, oh, so-and-so, I won't name the person because I'm not sure if they're still around. But anyway, he said, oh, so-and-so has just told me they're gay. My, 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 my brother wasn't anti the person because he said that. In fact, it was the opposite. He was showing kind of sympathy and, you know, that this was a terrible tragedy and a terrible crisis. And, you know, that this other guy had said he was homosexual. And I just remember when the light went out and we went theoretically to sleep, I just cried, cried because I I realised that that was me as well, you know, and my brother was only sleeping a matter of feet away from me, who was concerned about this other person, but I hadn't the kind of guts or whatever it was at the time, the strength to tell him, well, I'm in the same boat, you know, despite the fact that my brother had showed great sympathy and very great sensitivity to the other person. I suppose seeing the concern, it like it, it feels like that's going to be the reaction for me is, is going to be this sense of setting out on a very hard journey for myself. That's what you knew was ahead of you. It was the personal psychological war inside you. You couldn't have a good life. You couldn't have pleasure. You, you, you certainly couldn't have kind of domestic bliss. And of course, being in that situation and realizing that the future is terribly bleak and full of pain and so on, that would be very close to bringing you to a suicidal position. I, I would know at least, I'm trying to think now, three or four young men who committed suicide because they couldn't handle their homosexuality. They just couldn't, couldn't see how they could live what was the real them in the midst of that Irish society. And so the inevitable choice was the only one left to them. 
looking back now, I suppose, when celebrating people's identity is such a huge part of, of how our culture has has developed and and really a part of Irishness that, that we all feel really proud of. It, it's just so awful to think that making that choice to, to be yourself led to this certainty of, of sadness and loneliness and such a hard life. How was it that you managed to start to, to understand that side of yourself and come to terms with it? When I was about 18, I suppose, I left Dublin, went of all things, worked in air traffic control in Shannon Airport. And then I went to the continent, worked in Brussels and Paris. And, and really, to be honest, of course, that was where I began to kind of come out, if you like. By November 1969, I was now living in Brussels. And I met an American guy there who, he, I mean, he kind of knew I was gay before I knew I was gay kind of thing. He led me into the underworld of Brussels. So at least then I began to discover that there was this world out there, this kind of scene, if you like, out there, you know. In fact, in fact I, I should have said I had a, a relatively serious relationship with a French guy. Um, I was mad about him, but I couldn't handle it at then because my parents didn't know I was gay. Nobody knew I was gay, all this sort of thing. I came out to a few Irish women friends in Brussels and that was the first time I really ever talked to anyone else about that, about my homosexuality. By that stage, I mean, I wasn't wondering about it. I knew exactly, but it was just all very closeted. So, I, but I couldn't handle this very serious relationship with a guy. And I walked out on him and came back to Dublin to go to UCD. And um, to some extent, you know, slammed the closet door shut again. Despite the fact that being gay was obviously something that you were still sort of reconciling um, with yourself, having lived in this a, a more out life in in Brussels for that that period of time, what was that transition like to to living back in Ireland? And and did it take you long then to decide to to come out? I was still very closeted in those days, and I was living at home because I grew up in Donnybrook, so we were just down the road from Belfield, and uh, my parents didn't know I was gay, and um, so I came back to Brussels and slammed the door shut. After I graduated, I went to work in Derry and here in Donegal, and um, I was doing a big project in Donegal, and I'd always kind of said to myself, this was my way of rationalising my own closetness, if you like, was that if I had a relationship, if I, you know, developed a strong relationship, I would tell my parents. But strangely, once I went to Derry, I went, I went to live in Derry in 74, 75, and I came out in Derry fairly quickly because the local newspaper, I can't remember, do you remember Paisley had Save Ulster from Sodomy campaign? And um, there were all these letters to the local Catholic newspapers in Derry, and I started to reply to them. Then people you know, started contacting me and so on and so forth. But just to stay with my parents for time being, I, I had decided that I, if I formed a solid relationship, I would tell my parents. But as it happened, I was doing this big Donegal project and I had to type a book, basically. And I, I didn't have a typewriter. My mother typed and I, she was helping me to type this one day. And we were sitting in, in her kitchen in Donnybrook. And the next minute, David Norris came on the radio. I can't remember now what particularly he was talking about. It just it was, and I, it was almost as if I vomited it out to my mother. My my coming out was like a vomit, you know. It, it just shot out of me that I had to tell her, you know. And, and it was, I, I blamed David Norris. He, I, I never looked back. <laughs> but that was the, that was the that was the moment, the trigger. 
to tell my mother. And that wouldn't have been an easy time to, to be that. So what was her reaction to it? Both my mother and father were fantastic. I mean, my mother decided that she would tell my father. And I think my father said something like that. He sort of suspected anyway. But <laughs> they were great. You know, they were fantastic. It was a hugely liberating there was obviously an anxiety that was holding you back from coming out up to that point. And sort of, did you compete at peace with it yourself before you came out or was that still an ongoing? Oh, process? no, I know. I was, I was, I was sort of very comfortable with it. I mean, by that stage, if you like, I was just enjoying it, you know, but I suppose in my own, I mean, to what the reticence, what kept me back would have been the fear that you'd be letting them down or that you'd be causing them worry and all of those kinds of things. Because in the society they lived in, you weren't, I mean, you were, it was criminal. I mean, you didn't know which was worse, being a criminal or being a sinner in the eyes of the church. And you certainly didn't want to cause pain or worry to your parents or whatever, you know. So it probably isn't the most pleasant metaphor to use. But I, I mean, I tend to think of that moment when I told my mother as a kind of a vomiting, like literally something that just couldn't be stopped. It just had to come out. And thankfully, she was very receptive to it. Um, and probably uh, in her own head, it began to explain things like times you know, I would have been a moody teenager and all of those kinds of things. I subsequently wrote this book, you know, about the history of homosexuality in Ireland. And the only kind of slightly negative comment my mother made was, would you not write a nice little romantic novel? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it sounds like you had you had always grown up with um, a foot in the sort of activist camp. And when you moved to Derry, I suppose you started seeing the LGBT exclusion or, or that the persecution. Yeah. And you felt compelled to become involved in that. Do you think that that sense of activism within you sort of wouldn't let you rest until you kind of came out. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, there was there was certainly no kind of, you know, I didn't plan it. It just, I mean, if I saw something that I thought was unjust or untrue or whatever, I'd respond to it. As I say, what, I started writing letters to the paper and then people started contacting me in my home or in my work. Whatever, and gradually a group emerged and we set up a dairy branch of that um that Belfast organisation, Cara Friend. And of course, Derry is kind of, you know, half in, half out of Northern Ireland. It's half in, half out of Donegal for that, you know. So the Derry Cara Friend was also the the Donegal Cara Friend. And we used to sometimes arrange slightly covert meetings in hotels. We'd, you know, we'd arrange a meeting in a hotel in Donegal, <laughs> let her get or liver or something. But of course, we wouldn't tell the management. We were just hiring a room or something. And all these gays from all over the place would turn up. And I, I, um, most, most of the time, they didn't know what we were at. But once or twice, one, one or two managers did know what we were at. And we weren't treated uh, with the greatest of Donegal hospitality. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was then, as they said. <laughs> just to say that in, in all the troubles, you know, and there was never anything sectarian or anything. The, the gay community was never, you know, split by sectarian. People were, of all shapes, sizes and backgrounds worked together on, on the gay issue. And I want to really highlight uh, a, a woman called Mary Kay Mullen set up a bookshop in Derry and she sold gay news, you know, the, the London gay newspaper. Well, I mean, in the heart of nationalist, strongly Catholic, you know, Derry, she did that. And that became, a, again, a catalyst for all sorts of other things, 
you know, to happen. It became a, the bookshop became a kind of a centre for people to meet. But I think around about the middle of the 1980s, we managed to get gay discos at McGee College. But just to show how innocent, in a sense, we were, I of the group of people that I would have been involved with, you know, organising, I was the only one that had a car. And some of my gay friends who were part of this setting up the discos, who rang me or whatever, and said, we'll be over to your house at five o'clock to take stuff up to the, the college for the disco. And I, in my innocence, I thought, oh, it must be sound equipment or something like that. But actually, when they got here, what it was was apple tarts. They had made apple tarts for the gay disco. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it, you know, it's far from uh, Studio 54 or whatever, you know, they make an apple. It was also very <laughs> homely and domestic. And, you know, we weren't going to shake the world with apple tarts. But uh, I think that is that is so lovely. Yeah. The two guys who made the apple tarts actually got married in London. I was at their wedding and I wasn't the best man, but I had some kind of an official role. I can't remember. But anyway, I told the story of the apple tarts at their, at their wedding in London. <laughs> there was certainly, if you like, my own personal coming out and getting involved in gay things was not, certainly not straightforward. You'd lived in Brussels for that period of time. Like, and I suppose at that stage, you would have been involved in a much more sophisticated version of the, the gay community and a much more active version of the gay community. How did you feel about that version of the community there, that version of the gay scene that you'd seen when you were in Brussels? And then, like, did you miss it when you came back to Ireland or were, or was it that you were looking for something that more reflected your own community and your own people? You know, in those days, all our models of what it was to be gay, insofar as we had models, came, well, mainly from America, you know, from New York or San Francisco or from London. And I'm very interested in Irish things. You know, all my life, that's been my work and my interest yeah, and things yeah. like that. And, um, you know, I want, I didn't want to be an American gay or a London gay. I wanted to be an Irish gay. And that kind of issue became quite important to me fairly early on. And, and of course, the problem was, you know, at least on the surface, there was no way you could be an Irish gay, if you like, as David Norris famously said, yeah. that the... It was obviously the words Irish and gay were mutually exclusive. I did a, a very unusual degree at UCD in early Irish history and archaeology. But very early on, from starting to look at some of that those Irish, old ancient Irish texts, I became aware, Jesus, this looks a bit queer. This looks a bit gay, you know. And slowly and yeah. surely, I began to realise that there was there was a history there. This all came as a great surprise to me. There was me thinking it would, it would have been wonderful to be alive in ancient Greece. And then I began to realise, oh, yeah. sure, it was great to be alive in ancient Ireland as well. And, um, <laughs> and, and that became a kind of a hobby then. And I started collecting bits of information uh, about that. Yeah. And ultimately later on, much, much later on, went on to write a book about it. But yeah, so we didn't need to wait till Stonewall in Ireland to have a, you know, a gay history. Yeah. On the contrary, it was there for one and a half thousand years before that. And this kind of fed that gayness or queerness and the culture isn't and doesn't have to be, you know, exclusively American. And it can be rooted in your community and in yeah. your 
that's a really interesting way of looking at things because I do think that people have often felt that there isn't a space for your gayness and your Irishness, Irishness within within the same identity. Yeah. The biggest and the most important institution on this island is the GAA. And like until very recently, people couldn't even conceive of the idea of a GAA player being gay. That was the, the purity of the Irish Catholic, you know, so it's a you're actually seeing now, I think, within a younger portion of the gay community that there's a real interest in our heritage and in things like learning the language and starting to understand, you know, what being an Irish gay person means. I mean, there may even be parallels be- between, if you like, that minoritizing of Irish and Irish speakers and so so, and the experience of gay people kind of having to develop a- another life within the, the, the bigger culture, the bigger society. But certainly there's a whole heritage there for the taking. While everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. Both Irish and international research into the experience of older LGBTQ people show that a significantly higher proportion of this population live alone and are non-partnered. This leads to an increased risk of loneliness and isolation as they age, particularly those living in rural areas. Paul spoke to me about why social connection is so important to maintaining good mental health. Deep down in the human brain is a hardwired program to seek connection with other human beings. Now, all sorts of things get in the way of that in the last 14 months, COVID. But for many people growing up in marginalised communities, that sense of connection, that sense of being close to people um, has been very compromised. We want to be around other people because that's where our source of emotional security comes from. That's when we feel okay in the world. The companionship that comes with that, the enjoyment, it's often much more about the chit-chat. It doesn't need to be about the big heavy jellies, but those kind of incidental conversations that actually are terribly important. They give us a sense of perspective. They give us a sense of meaning. It helps us to locate ourselves in the world and ultimately strengthens our sense of identity or our sense of ourselves as individuals. As a clinical psychologist working with people who are depressed and who are anxious, you know, one of the most important questions that we can ask another human being is, when is the last time you had a really meaningful connected conversation because there is a huge correlation in the research that says our social connection is so protective it protects us from anxiety and depression low mood its value really can't be can't be overstated 
It is interesting because that that influence of queer people on Irish culture is is everywhere. It's just it's not so openly acknowledged. But I guess that's changing as our society opens up. But there's still quite a lot of our, our queer identity uh, buried in that secrecy range. And that's not just in the, the ancient past, but in the, the more recent past as well. I wonder in, in your conversation with other men of you know, Malcolm, my age, you know, there was there was also great excitement. You know, there was a a sexiness about the having to do things in a covert way and I'm not trying to idealise it far from it but there was a, as I say there was an excitement about that um, I mean I, I used to be always amused at how things like say public toilet you know the life of a public toilet this secret life that went on in the middle of the rest of society <laughs> but there were certain pleasures derived from the, the very fact that you were coming society in the face and they didn't even know you were doing it kind of thing curious as if any other older gay men have ever discussed that both sides have come up in, in the other conversations I've had where I think some people were, were so the need for normality and to fit in and to be part of traditional society was so strong that they saw this kind of like cruising culture and, and yeah. sort of sexual liberation as being something that was like abhorrent. And even if they didn't participate in it, it somehow was a, a stain that they couldn't rub off themselves just by being gay. But then on the other side of it, there is this sense of like it's part of our history and of our culture and like it formed over having to find ways to express ourselves and own our own identity in the long grass away from the private yeah. society and there is something sort of exciting and, yeah. and something sort of you know as exactly as you said thumbing your nose at, at mainstream society these innocuous locations assuming this entirely other yeah. sort of use and I think and as well like these were community spaces in a way before the likes of mainstream gay bars yeah. existed oh absolutely oh yeah and I know a lot of younger gay guys sort of look at that time and think oh, what would I have liked to have to have experienced that or if it's almost part of the heritage of of being a gay man yeah well well, I have one gay friend in, in, in Dublin he'd be a good bit older than me he'd be well into his 80s or middle 80s even older and he I know I know he he would have opposed the referendum and it would have been very anti-reform, you know, because he, he sees, he, he thinks that this opening up is the loss of something rather than the gaining of something. Now, I think that's a very extreme position. But I, I think even myself, I can look back with a certain nostalgia to some of the, the some of the things that yeah. we had to do covertly. The very fact that you that was the way you did them or whatever. That that was, you know, they, you got an extra, slight extra, I mean, I've used the word thrill associated with doing this in the middle of conventional society all around you. Having said all of that, I'm still delighted that there is all these reforms. That. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. We want inclusion, uh, but we, we don't necessarily want to have to, uh, you know, look back over our queer culture and, and have to like cut them off or, or yeah. start like reshaping them as negative. I, I, I can actually talk to you about that and about the, the queer Irish, Irish history for, for all day long. But um, to, I suppose, come back to gay culture is frequently seen through the prism of youth. Yeah. But as 
as you, I suppose, as you get older, how, I suppose, how are you relating to your LGBT identity? One of the things that it strikes me, I think we must have, I, I, by the way, I, I know nothing about my body or the anatomy, or the, but I think we must have hormones or something in our bodies that prepare us for old age. Because certainly I have no sense of, you know, loss of youth or any of these kinds of things. And I'm very mm. happy to be the age I am. I'm very happy to, to be slowing down in, in ways. Now, I mean, you know, as many people say, you, you still feel 16 in your head. I, I don't think this is a stereotype because I think it is, it's certainly my experience that when you meet older gay men, they always look about 10 to 20 years younger than their straight contemporaries. <laughs> I really don't think that's a prejudice or a stereotype. It's simply my experience that, uh, you know, whether it's uh, straight life has taken its toll in a greater way than... But so I, certainly the gay people I know around me are sources of great joy. You know, there's an expression in Irish, Laura and Ina, you know, you're still out there. But certainly I have no huge regrets that I don't live in the middle of Amsterdam or wherever, um, or Ibiza, you know. Um, for my, certainly for me, and I hope this isn't too kind of blowing your own trumpet and all that sort of thing, but growing older as a gay person has been a very positive, very pleasant experience. And um, I don't wallow in <laughs> regret or anything like that at, at all. If I could ask you about that, I suppose, um, because what sounds from, from getting to know you and from chatting to you is that you, you have built a very solid support network around yourself in terms of friends. You have access to a queer network that I suppose you can rely on and you can talk in. And I think- Oh, yeah. And people that you can talk to. And, and I suppose that is something which we hear a lot of older gay men are lacking, which is that they, they don't have that support network right, around them. Yeah. And I think the community that you've built for yourself is exactly what we want for other older LGBT people is that, that that sense of kind of, you know, people who are going to be able to look in on each other and having those friendships and still having that connection back to the to the gay community and feeling like they are wanted and belong as part of it. You have to make the effort, you know, and I, God, I, I know that sounds very arrogant, but I mean, if you want to de-engage with people, you kind of have to go after them because they, they'd be showing, you know, they'd be as shy as you are and all the rest of it. and and. I hope no longer. I, I would hate to think that there are, say, gay people. Well, I, I suppose I'd have to distinguish between gay men who are out gay. And of course, the country is full of gay men who never came out and who were, they never felt yeah. able to come out because of the social pressures and that. Um, but I kind of do feel, certainly my experience of this country now is that there's very little hostility. But I mean, in the ordinary communities of Ireland, rural Ireland included, the gay thing is no longer an issue. I, that's my impression. But then, and it, and it can be very hard, but but that you have to, to some extent, um, you know, work at it yourself. And you have to go out and you have to. Well, no, I, I, I don't want to pretend that I arrived here in Donegal with rainbow flags flying from my car from <laughs> the top of my house. I mean, you know, I, 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 I would have kind of let it out slowly and, you know, you know, no, I, I would have just, you know, started shoving it in our face kind of thing. But but that gradually, in various ways, I would have let people know that. I, I haven't encountered a single negative, not a single negative moment or syllable or anything like that. And um, I know if, if, if you've lived a very closeted life and felt under all those negative pressures, 
it's very hard, you know, to change your ways. And, and there must be people, I mean, I feel very sorry for people who maybe look back at their lives and think, God, why didn't I do this 30 years ago or 40, whatever, you know. And that must be a really difficult position. But today is the first day of all our lives yeah. rather than the last day, you know. And that whatever we've left, <laughs> we can make the best of it. I was actually opposed to the referendum, not because I, not because I didn't want to see marriage equality. But I believed that it was a gamble of taking a referendum, and I didn't believe the constitution required it. But having said that, I, I would have to eat my words. The referendum was a marvelous, transformative thing itself, almost irrespective of the outcome. You know, I have an aunt in Cork who would be, I think people would describe her as, you know, right, very Catholic, so on support. And on the Monday morning of the referendum, following the referendum, she rang me to congratulate me, almost as if I had won the referendum personally myself. <laughs> and she rang me and she said, she said, Brian, you know, I don't agree with it, but I'm delighted it won as well, you know. And I think that was that's a very common Irish attitude. Um, you know, we're full of contradictions in this country, but I, I thought that she sort of summed up that contradiction. And I, I think that's very common. And I hope people who maybe feel isolated and lonely and that could, could capitalise on that, could, you know, could avail of that. I, personally, I think it was always there, but it just took the changes of, you know, to make it more explicit and more available. The winning aspect of the referendum was that it inspired so many people to share their stories and talk to people around them about their lived experience. And when you know someone, it's hard to see them as an outsider. So the the experience that that you were lucky enough to have and say that I've had in in terms of a very accepting family is not what everyone experiences by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that the more and more people share their stories and LGBT and queer identities become normalized and seen as being valid the more infrequent those highly negative responses hopefully will become. Personally, I'd be very optimistic about the country on those, you know, that resistance, hostility, all those are now just small pockets and increasingly will be seen Mm. to be irrational and uneducated. But there are victims who didn't grow up in that world. And I hope people like that can find some solace now, you know, at the end of their lives. What do you think Irish society or the LGBT community in itself can do to, I suppose, further that or or reach the handout to those people? I think the fact that, you know, your organisation is focusing on that and you have a presence, you're obvious, you're, you're kind of campaigning. You know, I don't expect kind of, you know, 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds who are out clubbing every night to be concerned too much about elderly people. I wasn't concerned about being elderly people when I was that age. But, you know, when we're growing up as just ordinary people, we know that we have elderly relatives and so on, and that they have needs. And, you know, that it, beco- if that it becomes kind of more widely known that gay people, not that we're, we're not different to other humans, but there are some maybe special areas and they didn't have it good when they were young. So now it would be great if yeah. through the actions and of young people, their lives could be just made that bit better. But I, I wouldn't want young people to have anything like that, forcing them, just, just that they become aware that that's another aspect of life. I suppose more of an empathy yeah, that needs yeah. to be built into maybe the way younger LGBT people see older LGBT people and, and more of an, an acknowledgement of us of it as an entire community. Yeah, absolutely. 
chatting to you today, it really comes through that you're someone who's very sure of themselves and, and I suppose very secure in your in your identity. So I wanted to ask, um, you mentioned earlier about not arriving in Donegal with the rainbow flags uh, on the top of the car. Do you still find that you have um, a pause or, you know, a concern when it comes a time where you need to, to reveal your your identity, despite the fact you said that you don't feel as if there is that same sort of negative um atmosphere so much even rurally yeah. anymore no it, it, there's, st- there's still things i was listening to panty on the radio on sunday morning and he was saying that you know this famous does he check himself at the zebra crosses crossing and yeah i mean there are certainly certainly situations and they'd be relatively common maybe you know once or twice a week or something like that where I'd wonder, should I, like, say say something comes up on Facebook, something that may be gay or something, and I, you know, I'm wondering if I should share it. And I, and it does enter my head, oh, so-and-so mightn't like that. Now, I probably, in most cases, overcome that, but that anxiety certainly is there, you know, so it's not completely yeah. gone. And, well, we're all results of our own history, and, and certainly, you know, having lived through a period when, it was both a criminal act and a mortal sin, and I don't know which was thought to be worse. Um, that's that's still there in there, and you, I mean, you fight it and use your own rationality and so on, education. So, but it's still there in there in a small way, and it does bubble up from yeah. time to time. Um, and I suppose it is about building up the strength to overcome it. It was the same as any coming out situation, because every time you go into a new group or into a new space you have to make that value judgment of if it's worth your while to you know be open about your identity or whether it's just like us oh, not worth it today because it might spur some a negative experience or yeah. it could just be a conversation about being gay that you're just are like i'm not in the mood for <laughs> this time yeah yeah well exactly yeah, yeah yeah you don't have to fight the good struggle every day now you seem very settled where you are and very happy where you are but what are your i suppose what are your, your hopes for the future I'm an archaeologist and a historian, but in fact, nowadays, I'm, that means mainly writing. And um, I have a, a, a kind of a commission, actually, to do another gay book. The idea is to compile a, a collection in Irish about gay, queer life in Ireland. But, um, you know, I, I kind of, I know my life is slowing down. I kind of like the way it's slowing down. I hope it doesn't slow totally. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in, in the idea of queer Irish identity and having our own heritage. That a gay identity isn't pulled from what happened in London in the 80s and what happened in America in the 60s. That, that yeah. there is a queer Irish identity. How would you like to see that celebrated? And how would you, would you like to see that sort of built upon within the Irish LGBT community? Yeah, well, I, I'd like to see more representation of that in the media. That it just becomes more obvious. And I, I, I'd like to see increasingly um, Irish gay queer people uh, availing of the cultural resources in their own yeah. culture. Um, and that's not to do anyone else's down or to pretend that ours is better than theirs. It's just that it's ours. That's you know, that's the way it is. Time and again in our conversations, Brian came back to his belief that for Irish LGBTQ people, there's a whole heritage there which is there for the taking. And he drew an interesting parallel between the minoritising of the Irish language and Irish speakers and the experience of LGBTQ people having to develop another life or persona within the bigger culture or bigger society in order to be accepted. 
In recording the interviews for this series, it's remarkable to me that despite the breadth of experience and the difference of the lives lived by the eight individuals who participated, there is one area of consistency. Each and every one said the same thing, that the most important thing that we can do to become a more compassionate and inclusive society is listen to the stories of those who've experienced marginalisation and face discrimination. So thank you for listening to this episode of Invisible Threads. For more information about LGBT Ireland, the National Support Service for LGBTQ people and the work which we do for all Older members of the LGBTQ community, or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, LGBT Ireland operate the National LGBT Helpline, which is available on 1890 929 539. We have also included details of other organisations that offer advice, support, and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Launch Care Integration Fund 2019.